Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. So, um, you know, if you missed last week or you already forgot what I talked about, like I have, um, <laughs> we started a, a new sermon series called uh, One Story, and we're basically looking at the Bible and trying to see how it is one story that leads to Jesus. Specifically, uh, last week we looked at, at creation and God's creative action in the world and how humans, you and I, and everyone before us, were created the, the purpose of being stewards of God's creation, being agents of building up this life-sustaining and life-supporting thing that God has gifted to us to live in. But we also realize that we're not very good at it, right? We've taken a world that's meant to promote and sustain life, and we've, we've defiled it with violence and with death and with evil, and we've turned it into a place that doesn't really promote life, and it doesn't really sustain life very well. But I also showed you how, how Jesus came and modeled for us the ways that we are called to be uh, creatures who, who partner with God in creative activity. But here's the thing that we have to understand is, is Jesus wasn't God's first action. It's, Jesus wasn't the first way that God tried to work with and in human beings in this world. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pick up the story of the Bible today, right where we left off, which is in uh, Genesis chapter 12. And so if you remember, we left off right after the uh, Tower of Babel incident, which is when humans were all kind of in one area of the world and built this tower to try and get up to the heavens and become God themselves. And, and what God did was he scattered them across the land, inherently creating what the Bible will refer to for the rest of its pages as the nations. And from among the nations, God is going to do something really, really special. And so at the very end of Genesis chapter 11, we're introduced to a man named Terah. And he has a son whose name is Abram. And this family is from a, a town called Ur in the land of the Chaldeans, which is another name for Babel, which is another name for Babylon. And that's just like kind of a nugget of facts for you to chew on for a few weeks until the people of Babylon show back up in our story. But what we need to understand is that this family leaves where they're from. They leave the city of Ur and head to the land of Canaan, which is where modern-day Israel-Palestine is today. And so we're going to pick up there, uh, and this is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. So it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a really important part right there. And so Abram went, and as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. So Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took his wife Sarai and his brother's son Lot, and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. And so when they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages towards the Negev. And so what we've got here is a scene that if you've read your Bible a time or two might be familiar to you. And if it is familiar to you, you might know that there are some problems with these things that God is promising to Abram. But essentially... In this promise, what we have is the creation of a covenant relationship between God and Abram. Covenant is like a very Christian uh, kind of word that we use, but like, what the heck does it actually mean, right? Well, in its most simplistic forms, it's, it's an agreement between two parties. And so I don't know about you or maybe your kids, but uh, my first exposure and experience of this type of arrangement came from the highly formal, legally binding form of the pinky promise. <laughs> you all had that like when you were kids or your kids had it? Basically, it's how older siblings or older neighbors or older classmates get one over on their younger counterparts, right? It's like, it kind of comes like this, right? hey, I'll do your chores today. Or if you do my chores today, I'll give you my ice cream tonight. And you're like, do you promise? It's like, oh, yeah, pinky promise, for sure. Like, can't break that. And pinky promises are like meant to be this kind of like sacred, unbreakable bond. But you all know what happens next, right? You do your siblings chores, and at the end of the night, where are they? Sitting on the couch eating your ice cream. And that's when we learn at an early stage that Often promises get broken, and along with them, so do our hearts. And we learn that some people, especially our older siblings, aren't really reliable to hold up their end of the bargain. But maybe more relevant to where we are in our lives now as adults is the institution of marriage. What happens at a marriage ceremony is two people make a covenant with one another, a promise to have and to hold in sickness and in health, to, to love and support one another until the end of their lives. And this is a covenant and a better representation, really, of what God has chosen to do with Abram than a simple pinky promise. Because the covenant of marriage is rooted and grounded in love and affection. And, and that is what we will find out throughout the story of the Bible the driving force behind God's desire to attach himself to human beings who can't even seem to keep a single pinky promise half the time. So anyway, back to Abram. I said that there were some problems with the promise that God has made, this very first covenant that God makes with him. And 
The problem is that God says, go on, leave your country and your family, and I'm going to make your offspring a great nation. Well, the problem is Abram doesn't have any offspring, and his wife is barren. There's no offspring in his future. And so that's problem number one on God's side. The problem on Abraham's side is that God said, go, leave your family and go where I am leading you. And hidden right in plain sight in the text of our Bible is that he doesn't leave them. He brings his nephew with him. And so right away, we can see that humans are going to struggle in this covenant partnership thing with God. And so in that, just the essence of time, we can't camp out here for too long. We've got to move forward, but here's the deal. Uh, Abram and his family are what we would call pastoral nomads. They're, they're roaming around the land of Canaan, down into and through Egypt. And what they're doing is they're just pitching tents and, and following their flocks and um, getting into all kinds of trouble. <laughs> Abram, as much as we love to hold him up on a high pedestal, like, he's a hot mess. Uh, he causes problems uh, in Egypt and with all the surrounding nations. Uh, specifically in Egypt, he goes down there and he lies about who his wife is. He says that she's his sister and that gets Egypt into trouble. And he's just like constantly got to bail out his nephew Lot, who he wasn't supposed to take with him anyway. But in Genesis 15, despite some of these like moral human failings, uh, God comes to Abram again and he kind of formalizes this covenant a little bit more that he has previously made. And so what happens is, is God comes to Abraham in a vision. And, and Abram's like, hey, God, uh, I'm telling you the promise that you made to me, it's ridiculous because I don't have any kids. And like, I'm old, my wife's old, and she's barren. And so like, what's up with this? And God says to him, this in Genesis 15. He says, so God, he brought him outside and said, look towards the heavens and, and count the stars, if you're even able to count them. And then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. And then he said, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And then what happens is Abram and God perform this like weird covenant binding ceremony where they cut some animals in half and it's, it's this ancient symbolic practice. And then uh, Abram is seemingly, seemingly convinced that he should trust God that all of this stuff is going to happen. And he does for like five seconds. Because the very next story is the story of Abram's disobedience in which he has a relationship with an Egyptian slave girl named Hagar. And she's pregnant and bears him a son named Ishmael. And, well, this doesn't go well because even though it was her idea, his wife, Sarai, is pretty upset. And so what happens is this woman and this new child are banished out of the camp into the wilderness to survive on their own not awesome. It's not good. But God responds in grace once again. And this happens pretty much immediately after. It says when Abram was 99 years old. So it's like 24 years has gone by. 
The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. And so then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now in the alien, the land of Canaan, for a perpetual holding. And I, I will be their God. So God's kind of like, hey, um, you messed up. <laughs> but I'm going to make some lemonade out of these lemons that you've handed me. And now, instead of being the father of a great nation, you're going to be the father of many nations. And so you get a new name, no longer Abram, but Abraham. And you might be noticing throughout these texts that there's a repeated theme, a theme of the promise of the land. And, and this land is going to be referred to from now on as the promised land. This is what God promises. But remember that, that covenants are an agreement between two parties. So what does God require of Abraham in return for this? Well, God, uh, a few chapters later, says this. And it's kind of a weird situation where God's talking to himself, and he's talking about whether or not he's going to clue Abraham into the judgment that he's about to rain down on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and he's like, should we tell Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? No, for I have chosen him that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. What we get from this is kind of now we have all the pieces of what the idea of covenant in the Bible is really trying to teach us. So covenants generally are an agreement between God and people that offer a gift, ask for a specific type of behavior in return for that gift, and that behavior is behavior that helps to bring about God's purposes in the world. And so the way this looks for Abraham is that we have this gift, right? Abraham will have numerous descendants, and they will inhabit the land. Then we have this, this request that Abraham will teach his offspring to do righteousness and justice. And then we have the purpose of all of this, that all of the nations of the earth will be blessed through them. Do you see it? This covenant will continue to be rehashed throughout Abraham's line, through his son Isaac that he's soon to have with his wife Sarah at the age of 100, and then through Isaac's son Jacob, and then through the 12 sons of Jacob who become the tribes of Israel. And the rest of the Genesis story, which I wish we could get into, but we just really can't, uh, it, it details the adventures, misadventures, and failures of these people who come from Abraham's line. And, 
what we have to know, what we have to know is that Abram's, Abraham's family is uh, dysfunctional as yours or mine. But God uses that dysfunction to further his purposes. And so the book of Genesis is going to end with a story of a man named Joseph who's sold into slavery by his brothers, who ends up in a, a jail in Egypt. And while he's in this jail in Egypt, God shows him that he has the, this miraculous gift of interpreting dreams. And the Pharaoh of Egypt has a dream that Joseph comes and interprets for him that, that shows that there's going to be seven years of, of abundant harvest and then followed by seven years of famine in all of the land. And so what the, the Pharaoh does is he elevates uh, this man, Joseph, from, from a, an imprisoned slave to like prime minister of the, the greatest nation in the world. And he, he stores up seven years worth of grain. And then when the seven years of famine hit, the Egyptians have food not only to eat for themselves, but food that they can share with the surrounding nations, including the nation of Israel, the tribes, the brothers who sold Joseph into slavery. They come down to Egypt looking for food, realize that this is their long-lost brother. Reconciliation and forgiveness happens, and Israel is blessed through Joseph's story, and they all come down to live and thrive in the land of Egypt, which is where we'll pick up our story next week. But just because this is the end of our story for today, it doesn't mean that the theme of the covenant ends with it. The covenant theme will continue throughout the, the story of the Bible, much later at the, the mountain of Sinai, where God will make a covenant with the whole nation of Israel, the, the same covenant made with Abraham, the gift of the land and of a numerous and strong nation with added new language of, I will be their God and they will be my people. With a simple request of teaching their offspring the righteousness and justice of God through remembering and following the law, all for the purpose blessing the nations around them. And much later than that, God will make a covenant with a king named David, saying essentially the same thing. Your family will rule this land. The requirement is that you rule it with righteousness and justice, and from your line will come a king who will bless all of the nations. <laughs> but if you know anything about your Bible and the people of Israel, or just humans in general, all of these covenants collapse because humans are, are just incapable, fundamentally incapable of holding up their end of the deal. The, the kings are corrupt and they lead the nation astray. So the nation loses and forgets the law. The family of Abraham becomes this corrupt thing that uh, just breeds unrighteousness and injustice rather than righteousness and justice. And it seems as though God's purpose in this world to bless the nation through this group of people that he's attached himself to, it seems like it's lost. Until God sends his son, a perfect human covenant partner, to restore the relationship between God and humans. We are told that this man, Jesus Christ, is from the family of Abraham 
We're told that he is the faithful Israelite who is capable of obeying and fulfilling the law. We're told that he is a descendant of the royal line of King David. And in Jesus, all three of the covenants that God made with Abraham and his descendants are restored through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He steps in and he fulfills all of these agreements that God had made with his human covenant partners so that the purpose of all those covenants to bless the nations would finally be realized. So through Abraham and through Israel and through the line of kings, Jesus comes with a new offer of a new covenant. It's not really a replacement of the old covenants, but rather it's this widening of their scope. An offer from God to extend the offer and the promises of the land now known as the kingdom of God to the entire world through faith in Christ and the invitation to follow him in living a life of righteousness and justice. This is the gift that came to us through the perfect life of Christ. It came to us through the work of the cross and through the resurrection. It's a gift that finds its ultimate fulfillment when God's purposes are finally realized at the end of our Bibles. A future hope where the whole world is blessed by the righteousness and justice of God in a renewed creation. But what does this all mean for you and for me? Well, it means, first of all, that we are God's covenant partners, that God has attached himself to us with love through the work of Jesus Christ. And that although that God only asks for us is faith in order to receive this gift, there, there's still an inherent call to action embedded in our acceptance of Jesus Christ as our Lord. See, we're called to be people who live into the righteousness and the justice of God that was displayed for us through the example of Christ and to teach our children who teach their children to do the same. And these words, righteousness and justice, are fancy words that have almost lost their meaning to us because we use them so much. And so I think what we need to look at is what's the point of living lives of righteousness and justice. And what does it actually look like for us? Certainly, uh, there's this element of, of behaving in a moral and ethical way. That's, that's no surprise because God is a moral and ethical God who has standards for how his people are called to live. But it's so easy for us to, to take that to the extreme and to get caught up in all of the details, and which often leads us to like imposing impossible standards on people and just setting up this kind of legalistic religion that Jesus was most definitely against in his dealings with the religious elite of his day. And so how do I know then if I'm living into the covenant that I've agreed to when I made Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. Well, I'll go ahead and say that there's like a pretty easy way to start out here. There's these things called the Ten Commandments. And they're a pretty good place to start because they set up really decent boundaries around human behavior and our interactions with one another. But let's be honest. Lists of rules don't inspire good behavior. They inspire us to behave well to avoid the consequences. 
But that's very different than actually living out lives of righteousness and justice. And so what is it then? What is it that inspires us? If it's, it's not a list of rules, what inspires us to live out lives of righteousness and justice? Well, I have to say that the only thing that really can is to buy into the purposes of God in this world. The purposes of God in this world, if you have been paying attention, is to bless the world around us. And so I think that this is really kind of the litmus test that we need to pay attention to. Does, does my behavior, does this attitude, this way of treating my neighbors further God's purpose of blessing the world? Does it represent Jesus in a way that inspires others to actually want to have a relationship with him, to actually want to follow him? Does my behavior and attitude make Jesus look like a good guy, or does it really kind of make him look like a bad guy? Does my behavior and the way I carry myself and teach my children and grandchildren to behave and carry themselves extend the love of Jesus to all people? Does it teach them to stand up for the marginalized and give those in need a hand up? Does it reflect the Jesus that I find in the pages of my Bible? Because God has partnered with us as individuals and, and as his church for, for this purpose. And so let's look at ourselves and, and let's find out if we're living into our end of the deal, into God's purposes for our world. And then we should get to work. And if this all sounds like a lot of work and really tough, it is. It's tough enough that the people of Israel couldn't seem to figure it out. It's tough enough that us people called the church can't seem to really figure it out. But God's promise to Israel remained. He was always with them. And God's promise is the same for us. As a church and as individuals, God, best of all, God is with us. And so take that to heart as you go from here today trying to live into the righteousness and justice of God. Let's pray together. God, you are a God who wishes to bless this world. This we know because you've said it so many times over and over again, traced throughout every theme of the Bible, every story of the Bible, and all the ways that you have interacted with humans, both recorded in our Bible and, and not. We have seen the ways that, that you have called us to higher purposes. We've seen the ways that you have called us to be people who, who create a world that is a blessing to, to those who need to be blessed. Those who find this world to be a cruel and unhospitable place to live. You called us to be the voice crying out in the wilderness the light shining into the darkness. You've called us to take the good news of your kingdom to the ends of the earth, to proclaim just as you have a gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and a gospel that invites 
the world to come see what you're doing, to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, to be a part of the family of God, your treasured possession. And so God, help us to, to live out that purpose in the ways that we live our lives, in, in and out, in the small things and in the big things. Help us to be proclaimers of your gospel in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, and in the highways and byways of our towns. Because God, you didn't have to choose to attach yourself to us. But you did. And so here we are. Give us a willing spirit, Lord, as we answer the call, saying, here I am. Send me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.